Today we have Kyle Kovats on the show. Are you a real estate professional looking to maximize your tax benefits? Kyle Kovats learned the power of using bonus depreciation to help real estate professionals get the most of their investments. In this episode, you will learn the amazing impact bonus depreciation has for real estate professionals, the tax advantages of investing in real estate, the importance of how much you keep versus how much you make, the historical superior performance of real estate returns versus the stock market, and the power of leverage. Listen and learn. Do you wish there was a way to invest in real estate without buying and managing your own property? I bought a duplex, then a 76 unit deal, then I partnered on 100 and 200 unit deals. It all started with that first investment. Go to dbprivateequity.com, sign up and start your journey. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Kyle Kovats before we start the show. Kyle lives on the East Coast in New Jersey. He grew up around real estate his whole life. He went to college and is an avid fan of Rutgers. He loves to talk about stats, and he is convinced that the returns for real estate are far superior than that of the stock market. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Kyle Kovas. Kyle, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So a little bit on how I know Kyle, and then we'll get into it. So um, Kyle and I are both um, members of the same multifamily mentorship group, uh, the Brad Sumrock group. And we met probably, I don't know, it was probably like three years ago. Um, You know, he had just joined the group and he came out and He's a young guy. I don't, I'm going to have to ask him his age, but he's a young guy and he is a powerhouse, man. He just got into it. He's not afraid to get out there and meet people and network. And um, so I'm very interested to hear what he's been uh, having going on for the last few years and we'll go from there. So with that, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Sure. So as a general partner currently, uh, I'm a GP in four assets, a uh, little over 1,100 units, 1,109 units. Um, was a GP in five assets. We had just sold out of one in Phoenix back in November. Uh, that was a 120-unit property out there. And then on the LP side, I have millions of dollars invested as an LP. So I don't just do uh, you know all deals on the GP side. On the LP side, thousands and thousands of units. I don't know the exact number of units there. Um, simply because some of them are like fun deals that have multiple properties trading in and out. Right, right. So, all right, let me just ask you, how old are you, my friend? Because you're, um, yo- you're a young guy. Yeah, I'm 32. 32. So when I met you, you were probably 29. I'm 52, so I'm 20 years your senior, my friend. <laughs> um, you know, not too many people in their 20s, you know, really get dedicated into getting into the investing world. So what prompted you to, what's your background and what prompted you to get involved? Yeah, I guess a big piece of it is my background. I've been in real estate my whole life. It's really all I've known. So my grandfather owned a pre-licensed real estate school in New Jersey that he opened up in 1973. So as soon as I graduated college, I had gotten my real estate license. And while I was a college student at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, I would drive up about a half hour up the turnpike. Um, I'd go to Hoboken and I would try to bang out rentals. So I really only did leasing when I first got into the business. So and I would see on these, uh, on these rental properties, number one, I was making good money doing rentals, but number two, I was able to see what these units were renting for. And I was able to see from year to year what the rents were going from. You know, on, on like a, a one property, I would see like a rent go from 2000, the last time I rented it up to, you know, perhaps 2,500 the next time it got rented. And I was saying to myself, 
wow, that's, that's a nice jump. And then I started understanding how investment properties were evaluated. You know, when you take the NOI divided by the cap rate and in my head, I started saying to myself, well, if they raise rent by 500 bucks a month times 12, that's going to be an extra 6,000 a year and a 5% cap rate. That's an increase in valuation of $120,000 just by raising the rent by 500 bucks a month at a 5% cap rate. So it started one unit. Yeah. On one unit, it started really ringing a bell in my head. So then I decided once I graduated uh, college just to do real estate full time, you know, a, a lot of kids who I went to college with, they would work in the city, you know, Rutgers is about a half hour from New York city. So, you, you know, the standard route for a lot of us was to work in the city, but I really liked real estate and I was starting to make good money doing it. I did real estate sales uh, full time within three years. I got named to the national association of realtors, 30 under 30. I was a solo agent selling anywhere between 15, 16, 17 million worth of homes a year. And I was able to really build up some good income doing so. Um, throughout that time I was doing subdivisions, Airbnbs, two to four families and things like that. Um, but the thing that I was seeing with that is I felt like I kept buying myself a job, I guess, rather than being an investor. Um, I started searching what are ways to invest in real estate passively without having to deal with, you know, kind of all the BS that I was dealing with, you know, in my other, you know, investments, if you want to call them that. Um, and I came across syndicates and I started passively investing in syndicates around 2015, 2016, um, started really liking how they were. I'd follow the monthly reports that would get sent out from the GPs. Um, I would go through the financials, the rent rolls, the, 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 you know, income statement, the T12 and, all, you know, good GPs were providing a little summary as well. What was going good, what was going bad on the property. And I started making mental notes. And then eventually I started making written, you know, written notes on, you know, what's going good, what's going bad. And I started saying to myself, you know what, maybe it would make sense for me to try to join a group that has a whole bunch of people doing this. And maybe I could partner up with people and maybe I can get on the other side of the table and go out and find the deals. Cause I think I have a good idea of what to look for now after passively investing in these deals for a number of years at that point. Sure. So what year did you join the Sumrock group? I joined late 2017, early 2018. Okay. So that was pretty much the same time I did uh, late, tw- late 2017. Yeah. Um, so since then, what you know? What's been your experience um, since you since you joined? What have you you been up to? Yeah, so still, you know, I still invest in deals as a uh, LP. As recently as last month, I you know had a deal that we sold, um, and I invested close to a million dollars as an LP into another deal. Um, so I've been doing deals on both sides. I would say every single year I do anywhere between one to two deals on the general partner side. Um, and on the LP side, it just depends how liquid I am at the time. But I would say on average, every single year, I'm investing into three to four different assets as an LP. Um, and yeah, just constantly looking for deals. You know, over the past, uh, I would say four years at this point, I've only done deals as a GP uh, with two partners in particular. Um, it, we have a good cohesion. We work together well. We kind of know each other, uh, you know, quite well at this point and understand, you know, what we look for and what we kind of you know, I guess ethos and, and, you know, what we look for as far as returns are concerned and we know what our investors want to see. Um, so it's been a good working relationship and, uh, and yeah, you know, just constantly looking for deals. Obviously right now there's not that much at all available. So it's kind of a uh, little bit of a waiting game. It's amazing how, you know, a year changes the, the market cycle. Um, let's go back to when you first started investing as an LP. Like the thing is, you know, you did that before you joined the Sumrock group. So how did you even get introduced to that? Because ne- you know, now I joined the Sumrock group it's around the same time as you did. And now my inbox is flooded, you know, with different investment opportunities. But before that, you know, I didn't get invited into any of those deals. So how did you even know to get into these syndication type deals? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I did is, um, I, on my iPhone, my friends are all listening to podcasts and I, like, I'm not into like pop culture and stuff like that. I watch sports and I do real estate. Um, so I would just search like, for instance, sports wise, if I needed my sports fix, that's ESPN for me, but for real estate, there's no like channel you could turn to for real estate. So I would go on the podcast app and I would type in real estate podcasts. And then furthermore, I really wanted to know real estate investing podcasts. And I came across the old capital real estate investing podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were interviewing people constantly over and over and over again. 
So these people who they were interviewing, I would start reaching out to them and say, hey, can you put me on your distribution list? Because I have money to invest. I'd like to invest in deals. And ideally, I'd like to invest in deals in the markets that I liked, you know, which at the time were Dallas. I liked the Texas markets in general, and I really liked Phoenix. Um, so anybody who was investing in those markets, I wanted to get on their list. And ultimately, a deal popped up in my inbox. And I'm the type where I kind of do my due diligence up front on things. And then once it comes up, I just act on it. So this deal popped up in my inbox, you know, webinar and two weeks out on a Wednesday night, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the webinar comes around, go through the webinar, watch everything. And I'm like, you know what? Let's do it. I'm hopping on in. This was like 2015, later 2015, hopped into that deal as an LP. And, uh, you know, that's at the time when you were an LP where, you know, cash on cash returns were like 10, 11, 12%. (laughs) I mean, it was nuts. You know, nowadays we're lucky if you get 6%, you know, that that's really lucky if you get 6% cash on cash these days, it feels like, but at that time it was like 10, 11, 12%. So I'm investing in this deal six months in, I'm getting an annual, you know, annualized cash flow distribution of like 9%. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Right. A few, couple of years later, that deal sells. My 100,000 I put into that deal turns into 223. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really, this is really good, right? It's so, crazy. and then all the different deals I was investing in as an LP, you know, I started off as an LP investing about $650,000. And within a couple of years, all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, I have like close to $2 million now. And that's because these deals, you know, at that time, it really timing, you know, played a big role in it too. You could have invested at really a better time. You know, debt got cheaper, cap rates compressed and everything like that. So, you know, but I took the leap of faith and I, you know, got in the game and it really, you know, ultimately did work out for me as an LP. But the beauty of that, I believe, is that at first, to be honest, I didn't have much interest in ever being a GP. Um, But what happened was, I started getting these tax benefits, right? I started getting these K-1s. I didn't even know what they were when I first started off investing. I had no idea. I got this K-1 back and I read it and it said I lost money. And I was like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> right. on, right? So That's I not what the out. monthly reports are telling me, right? Right, right. So I reach out to the, uh, the GP on that deal and I said, hey, I just got this tax document. It says we lost money. And he was like, it's not really a loss. It's a paper loss for depreciation. He's like, talk to your CPA. So I remember I made a Facebook status about it and a kid I went to high school with who was a year younger than me, who I was friends with reached out to me and he said, Hey, yeah, since you're a full-time real estate professional too, you can probably use it against your ordinary income from like your real estate commission income. And I said, are you sure? I was like, how does that work? I was like, where's your office, right? His office ironically was a half mile from my office in New Jersey. I said, let's get lunch. We got lunch. We went over everything. And he was like, you have, you know, well into the six figures of tax deductions here. And I was like, Oh, Okay. So let's go. So anyway, I I went from paying six figures in federal income taxes to next to nothing to nothing in some years, like overnight. And it was really just a whole game changer. And it really widened my mind. And when that happened, you know, I'm selling a lot of real estate at that time. I just started making mention of it to other realtors. Like, Hey, do you own any investment properties? You know, some of the top realtors in the market who I really looked up to, And some of them would say, yeah, you know, we got one investment property or others would say, no, we don't have any investment properties. We just sell property. And I was like, you should buy some investment properties. I mean, you should talk to my CPA because I know nothing about this. Right. But talk to my CPA. He'll be able to really expand upon everything for you. They started talking to my CPA and they were like, Hey, you know, you're investing in these different deals in different markets. How are you doing that? And I was like, well, I just find people who are doing these deals, these syndicate deals. And, um, you know, I just, kind of throw money into the deal and I don't do anything. I literally just put money into the deal and I get a monthly report and I get checks. I called it mailbox money. I get mailbox money here and there. And they were like, well, can you let us know when you come across one of those? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? Um, anyway, long story short, what it led to is I had enough people, you know, one person would tell another person would tell another person. And I'd have all these people reaching out to me like, Hey, when you find these deals, let us know. So I was like, you know what, maybe it makes sense for me to join one of these groups and find people who are doing these deals, partner up with them. Um, the value that I could provide is that I know a lot of people who are looking to invest, number one. And number two, my career started off in leasing. I have experience with leasing, with marketing and things like that. Um, so I could help out on that side as far as like tenant retention and things of that sort. So whereas I might not be the boots on the ground, I could still provide some sort of value to people, you know, who are looking for partners. Um, That's huge. And ultimately that's kind of, you know, how I guess my GP, you know, journey started. It really started off as me just being an LP and just randomly talking to people who, you know, I was friends with about it. Right. And then, um, have they come back to you and, and said, thank you for getting me involved? 
Yeah. So, you know, funny enough, we just, uh, we just had our first deal, uh, you know, that we, as a GP that we bought back in February of 2019, it closed in November and the equity multiple on it was 3.55. Yeah. Um, yeah, which was quite good. So, you know, in other words, if somebody put a hundred grand into it, they got 355 back between cash flow and appreciation. So it was one of those deals. Grand turns into $355,000. Yeah. Now the thing is, I, and I have to always say this to people, like when, when that deal closed out, I was very sure to make mention to people that, Hey, just so you know, this is probably the exception and not the norm. Right. Um, you know, I think historically we probably would look to, you know, our goal would be to get 16 to 20% annualized. I think that's a pretty, you know, solid, good return. Um, but what we did there, we did roughly about 95% annualized over a three plus year hold. So the only caution there is, you know, does that make expectations unrealistic where people are like, yeah, Kyle might be saying, you know, we'll get, you know, 16 to 18% projected returns. But he said that last time and last time we got 95%. So I just want to caution, you know, people to not expect that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've had other syndicators say that it's like it, it can make uh, investors, you know, if they come out out of the gate and get some big wins right away, their expectations could be that they expect that on every deal. Um, right. Yeah. So that's interesting. So now talk about, so you've been in the real estate world forever. Um, you had all these people coming to you. Talk about kind of how realtors, because I personally think that there's a lot of realtors that are not taking advantage of this tax law. And it doesn't have to be, um, the realtor doesn't have to have, you know, made a ton of money off of their, their being a realtor. It, it could be the spouse is a realtor and sold one or two homes, but they're a full-time realtor. And then the other, you know, spouse is, is a high income earner and pays a lot in taxes and how that would help that, that couple. Right. So, I mean, you nailed it, Darren. Um, I, to me, as somebody who is very involved in real estate, I own a real estate school, pre-licensed school, the one that my grandfather started, um, when he passed away nine years ago at this point, I had taken it over and we have about anywhere between 700 to a thousand agents who come through a year to get their license. And I always really stress to them, like, I know so many realtors who despite being involved in real estate, don't own any real estate outside of the home they live in. Right. And to me, it really blows my mind from a couple of perspectives. Number one, we see these deals before anybody else even sees them for the most part. Before we list the property, we could always just buy it ourselves directly off the owner. That's number one. Number two, the tax benefit side, I don't think a lot of people to your point are even clued in on. I don't even think they know about it because it's one thing you know, Gary Keller says this, the guy who founded Keller Williams, he always talks about gross versus net. How much do you make versus how much do you keep? How much you keep is so much more important. But I know realtors out there who legitimately make like a million bucks a year just selling homes on their team. But then you take into account the federal taxes in some states, like New Jersey, as an example, the state taxes, the self-employment taxes. And at the end of the day of that million, they're keeping like $400,000. after taxes. So, however, what if they started learning about real estate investing? They can create passive income for themselves. They can grow their, you know, net worth overall and just wealth in general. They can create, you know, assets to leave to their kids. And ultimately they could stick a lot more money in their pocket and save money on taxes. So I remember going to an, uh, an event where Tom Wheelwright was speaking and Tom Wheelwright, for those that don't know him, you know, one of the top tax consultants, you know, really in the world. Great, and, great uh, book out there if you haven't read it. Yeah. Yeah. Tax-free, Tax-free wealth. wealth. Second edition. So, um, but with that being said, I hear him speaking and he's saying, yeah, you know, you could have a doctor who's making a million dollars and this doctor's spouse is a realtor making $50,000. But since the spouse is a full-time real estate professional, their combined joint income can use deductions from their real estate investments. So their combined 1.05 million in income, if they have enough deductions, they could potentially wipe the whole thing out. And that I said to myself, wow. And now in my head, you know, I'm always 
thinking about, you know, where can this be utilized? Right. Sure. And in my head, I'm like, you know, maybe this is cause I'm always trying to find ways to make Rutgers football better. So I'm like, maybe we could talk <laughs> the Rutgers football coach into, you know, getting his spouse a uh, real estate license because although we can't pay as much as Ohio state and Michigan, we're going to have our coach, you know, keep more in his pocket cause he's going to be able to save all this money in tax. But, um, it's, it, it is crazy. When you think worked about out? That. It hasn't worked out though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go Not back yet. to that scenario of that guy that's that, that uh, starts with a million and he ends up with four hundred thousand. You know, so that's five five to six hundred thousand dollars worth of taxes. Let's assume that you get to that person to you know invest where they actually have no tax liability. So, which for anybody listening that hasn't done this, it just sounds like pie in the sky, but it is real. So, if he took that five hundred thousand and then invested in a deal. And then that 500,000 then doubles in five years. Now that's a million dollars extra that that doctor, you know, didn't have. Yeah. And then Darren, I'll give you a perfect example. And year three and year four and year five. Right. So I did this. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, We just talked about that deal we had in Phoenix, right? Where, you know, 3.55 equity multiple over a three year hold. Yeah. 2018 which was the first full calendar year of 100% bonus appreciation, I had $556,000 worth of tax deductions. Ultimately, that saved me in the vicinity of about $200,000 in taxes. That savings for taxes, I rolled into that deal. That deal then produced a 3.55 equity multiple. That 200 that I would have otherwise paid to the government turned into 700. Net at me, when you take that, I should have paid, I would have, I shouldn't should have, I would have paid 200 without the tax benefit. Instead, I took the 200, I put it into that deal. That 200 turns into roughly about 700,000. I net it 900,000 over the course of just three years because, literally because I went to a seminar and I learned about this stuff. And I talked to a kid I went to high school with who's now my CPA. I don't, you know, I shouldn't call him a kid anymore because we're both, it's I guess, crazy, men now at this my point, man. but yeah. <laughs> you look, you're 32, I'm 52. There are 20 somethings out there. If it like start investing in real estate as early as you can. So it's still a question mark. People don't really understand. How do you have a tax loss, a paper loss? What does that even mean? You know, it's real estate is really bizarre because you can, it, you can take depreciation when it's typically an appreciating asset, which doesn't make sense. Like, you know, I started out as a CPA in accounting world. And, but it's true. And the government does that. If you read like Tax Free Wealth from Tom Wheelwright and others, they do that because they want you to invest in the economy and keep workforce housing affordable. If, if we weren't investing in those properties, then it would be very difficult to keep those properties, you know, well-maintained because nobody's dumping, mu- you know, pouring more money into it. So the working class would, would be living in very, very poor conditions. Agreed. So that's huge. And congratulations to you, my friend. You Thank know, you. But Thank it, you. Takes, it takes courage and it takes, you know, action to, to get in. I mean, people will say, I'm sure you, you're, you've got your drinking buddies that are like, oh, you're lucky, man. You got in at the right time. And you know, you, it's, but you went and looked into it and then you actually took your money and put it in and look, every investment, there's risk of loss. It, you know, it turned out to be fantastic for you, but there's a lot of people that just sit on the sidelines and they, they just let life push them around. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a key, you know, obviously, um, the timing, you know, plays a role for sure. It definitely plays a role. You know, if, if interest rates go down and cap rates compress, you're going to make money. Um, but with that being said, you have to be in the game to make money to begin with. So to your point, um, yes, there it's to say that like we completely drove the value to get the 3.55 X, you know, equity multiple, I, that would be a lie, right? We didn't completely, I think we operated well. We kept occupancy super high. We always had a wait list and everything like that. And we, you know, treated the tenants really well too, which, you know, definitely played a factor in the renewal rates that we were able to obtain there. But uh, yeah, to your point, you have to get in the game because if you're not in the game, you can't get any of these home runs. Not that we swing for the fences. You know, I always say we swing for singles and doubles, but if you swing for a single or a double and you really connect well, it might go out of the park and that one went out of the park. 
Yeah, that's huge. So talk about, um, you know, one of the significant things that's happening in a lot of these deals right now is you were talking about cash on cash earlier and a lot of deals are either holding back on distributions or cutting distributions because over the last two or three years, a lot of deals have been financed uh, with bridge loans and floating rate debt. So talk about pausing distributions or cutting back distributions altogether. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, so pretty much every deal I'm in, both as a GP and LP, um, distributions have been paused, any deal that is on bridge debt. And the reason is because if you look at the Fed dot plot, the one from this time last year, the most recent Fed dot plot at that time was the one from the December Fed meeting. The Fed's own dot plot projected that in 2022, the rates would not go above 1%. Oh, they went way above 1%. They ended the year at about 4.5, right? Their Fed dot plot at that time for 2023, they projected they would never get above, you know, 1.5. That was their number, 1.5. 2024, they projected that at that time, they would get rates to 2%. So now what has happened, you know, rates have gone significantly higher. Now the market's thinking that, you know, the Fed will probably get up to somewhere between five and a quarter to 5.5. And perhaps, you know, their last hike, instead of being in March, the bond market seems to be pricing in, they will hike also in May and perhaps even June as well. So what that leads to is deals that are on bridge debt who have floating rate debt and have rate caps that they bought up front, perhaps for two years or three years or even one year in some cases, those distributions that they would have otherwise paid out are getting paused so that this way the general partners can build up cash reserves in order to buy future rate caps. Um, and just to keep the cash position strong, because it doesn't matter I guess what the data perhaps says at the end of the day, if you look ever at the Pensford studies, the Pensford study, Pensford does great studies with JP Conklin. And what it shows is that floating rate debt is better than fixed rate debt 90% of the time, 90% of the time on a five-year hold. Number two, if the fixed rate debt was better, it's only better by 0.9%. If the floating rate debt is better, it could be as, as close to 5% better in rates wise, which is huge when you think about it that way. But when you're going through it, like when we're in the, you know, point that we're in right now where inflation, it's you know, painful. slowly, it is, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's almost like one of those things where you see a good employment report and it's like, well, good news is bad news, but bad news could be good news. It, it feels weird, right? When you see a, a hot employment reading of 500,000 plus new jobs and you're like, Ugh. you know, the projection was like 200 and now the Fed's gonna, you know, maybe raise even more and things like that. So until there's really clarity on what the Fed's going to do. When are they going to pause their rates? When might they start cutting the rates? I understand, you know, both as me as a general partner and also deals that I'm invested in as an LP when those general partners, when they're pausing, you know, their cash flow distributions, I understand it. Um, I also think it's a smart thing to do because you'd rather, as they say, you'd rather have the cash and not need it than to need it and not have it, right? So um, I think building up cash reserves is the smart way to go right now. And then, you know, once there is clarity on what the Fed's doing, once inflation does eventually come down, then the spigot could be turned back on as far as cash flow distributions are concerned. And if it's a case where you're just kind of socking that money away in reserves, it's not like that money disappeared. It is still there. So if the Fed, or when the Fed, I should say, does eventually pause, and when they do eventually start cutting rates, when inflation does come down, that money at that point, that would be the time where it makes sense to, you know, put it out there because rule number one is protect your LPs, right? You know, you never want to risk the um, loss of capital invested and you want to do everything you can to prevent a situation like that. Um, so I think the pausing of distributions, you know, right now, both as the deals I'm in as an LP and also the deals, you know, I'm, you know, on the GP side, uh, I think that is definitely the prudent measure right now. Absolutely. So, you know, for the, all that is fantastic information for the Listeners, you know, some listeners understand all of that and some don't really understand the financing piece of it. So I'm going to delve into that a little bit. Um, you know, on these multifamily deals, you can't get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage like you can on your house. You know, they all have some kind of balloon feature. And what does a balloon mean? It just means that the loan is going to come due at a certain period of time and you either have to sell the property or refinance at that point in time. So um, the longest term you could probably get in these multifamily deals is 10 to 12 years fixed. And that, that would be with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, the agencies. 
Banks like to be in kind of that five-year max time frame. Um, and then over the last several years, bridge financing was a, was a big um, popular way to finance these deals. And the typical structure on a bridge loan would be a, a one or two or three, three-year typical um, plus two one-year extensions. So three years to the reset with two one-year extensions. And like um, Kyle was saying that, you know, it's floating rate debt. So as interest rates went up, the debt service went up, the interest rate went up. So more of the cash flow is getting paid to pay, pay that debt service. But then the second thing that was happening is that some of these lenders were requiring, say, a year out from, say, say maybe it was a seven-year floater with the agencies, and then you had at, you're coming up to, uh, you bought a three-year cap, and then you're, you're done with two years of it. You have a year left to buy. The lender requires you to start reserving to buy a new cap. And so that's going in as reserves, into a reserve account similar to how your property taxes and your insurance might go into your your mortgage payment. It's going into that account and a year from now when you actually purchase that cap, if it's lower, you're only paying the amount that the, the actual cap cost. The lender is just being conservative to require you to purchase, to reserve for that cap. Um, if you were to sell the property before that, all those reserves would go back to the investors. Um, but I think that that confuses some investors where they just see, you know, the combination of increased debt service and the reserves. That's a big jump. And, you know, it could go, it's not like 10 or 20, 20%. I mean, you could see, you know, a property up paying $30,000 a month and then all of a sudden paying $70,000 a month. And you're like, holy cow, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 to your point, the escrow reserves, you know, for buying future rate caps too. I, I've heard some stories um, of, you know, that number being in some cases, cases in excess of $50,000, $75,000 a month. A month. For, yeah, for interest rate cap reserves. Right. It's crazy. It's great. It really is. It's, I mean, so, so a lot of things are going on. And, and I agree with Kyle that um, it's prudent to you know, keep the cash, um, available. And I'm, I'm older than Kyle, but I'm still not counting on that cash flow as my, as paying for my daily living. Um, now if I was an investor that was counting on that money for my daily living, that would make it much harder because that would impact how I live. Um, I look at these deals as being a combination of cash flow and the back end capital gain. And, you know, the two combined is much more attractive um, than investing in the stock market from my perspective and has huge tax advantages. So I'm okay with them holding off and, you know, waiting for a better time to, to you know, reinstate uh, distributions. Yeah, I would agree with that. And to your point, yeah, for the, uh, for the full-time real estate professionals, when you account for the cash flow appreciation and depreciation, I mean, when you look into the net effect of returns, it's, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. I mean, your, your example alone, you know, you would have paid 200,000 and instead you ended up with close to 700,000, you know, so that's a 900,000 swing. That's only yeah. one year. If you do that for five years, you know, that, I mean, obviously, you're not going to get that 3.6 multiple on all your deals, but you know, you you end up getting that compounding effect where each year you're saving a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars in tax. You're putting that into a deal that that doubles over time. Um, it, it it makes a massive difference, and you know that's probably why why um, you know people say that ninety percent of millionaires are created through real estate. You know, I mean. I don't know about you, but it, when I got involved with this group, I met a ton of people that were like, and people get to the net worth discussion pretty darn quick. And yeah. I couldn't believe how many multi, multi, multi millionaires there were. Um, and I've asked people like, that I know that are wealthy, like, do you know anybody that's 
I'm wealthy just by saving. And I was told no. Like, I don't know what your experience is. Yeah. I mean, even, even if you look at the, uh, there was a study done between 1870 to 2015, looking at what's called the geometric mean of different returns of, you know, equities, meaning the stock market. 1870 to when? 1870 to 2015. And what it showed was that equities, the stock market during that time, when, when you know, accounting for volatility, the average annual return was 4.64%, 4.64%. Post-1950, it was 5.1, around 5.1. For real estate, from 1870 to 2015, the average annualized return from just depreciation alone was 6.61%. Now, with that being said, you got to remember, that's if you buy it 100% all cash, 6.61%. Wow. Most people who buy investment properties buy it with 25% down. So if you buy that with 25% down, we take 6.61 multiplied times four and your average annualized leverage return, if you're buying with 25% down, would be about 26% from just appreciation alone. Not even accounting for cash flow, not even accounting for the tax benefit. So when you compare, you know, 4.64 in the stock market, you know, from 1870 to 2015, again, this isn't even accounting for the 2015 to 2022 crazy run up in, in you know, real estate prices, Right. But from 1870 to 2015, the stock market, 4.64, real estate, if you bought with 25% down, the leverage return would have been about 26%. You know, that's a little over five times more uh, on the return profile. So when you think- I've never heard anybody say that. That's huge. It's crazy when you think about that, especially when you plug it into a compound interest calculator and you see what the difference is over time between 4.64 and the stock market. Because the stock market, you know, the- average annual return, not accounting for volatility is something like eight to 10%. Right. But when you actually account for the volatility that it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, you know, because if you have a stock as an example, and you put a hundred dollars into the stock market and it goes up by 20%, that's now worth 120 bucks. Right. But then if it goes down by 10%, the average annual return there, you would say is 10%, but it's really, it's really the, the overall return, you know, goes down right? Because if, if you have, again, this example, a hundred dollars you put in the stock market, the stock market goes up 20%. That's 108. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's 108. But the thing is over the course of two years, your average annual return, most people would say, well, that's 10% or excuse me, that that's uh, that's 10% total, which is, which is, you know, 5%. But really what it is, is your hundred turned into 108 over two years. Your hundred did not turn into 110. Right. So uh, when you account for actually the volatility of it, that's where the real returns, that's how you really have to analyze the returns in my opinion. And again, leverage returns is buying with 25% down, which is, you know, kind of a standard down payment for an investment property. Um, again, real estate's beating the stock market by like five times, a little more than five times. Leverage. I mean, leverage is, is a huge piece of real estate. And so before I got involved with Sumrock Group and got involved with, you know, large-scale multifamily, my wife and I bought a new construction duplex, okay? And I still own it. Um, and that was, you know, partly because of mindset. You know, I, I didn't know how to buy these larger deals. Um, but just even with that duplex, right? You know, it was a $300,000 purchase. My wife and I put in like 50 grand. We got a loan for the the remainder uh, from a bank, you know, personal recourse. And I don't know that that was maybe five years ago. And the, I don't know what I could sell it for, but the tax roll on it now is valued at like 430. So I really didn't do anything. You know, I've owned the property for five years and the two tenants that are, are paying my mortgage, my property insurance, you know, my, and, my taxes. So I'm, I'm positive cash flow a little bit. Um, but it went up by 120,000. Like I didn't do anything like just by owning it, owning an asset, you know, and you know, it would have taken a long time to put 10% away and have it grow to that $110,000. The crazy part when thinking about that, and it's something I always try to stress to people is that you took 50,000 out of your pocket, right? To buy that. And the property went up in valuation from 300 to 420. Right. Your 50,000 in equity is now 170,000 in equity. Right. So you went from having 50,000 to now 170,000. So but, but when you really look at it that way, like your return on your equity there 
is huge. You know, you, you made an extra $120,000 just by, you know, having a roof over your head, right. which is insane when you think about it that way. But I, I think oftentimes people don't look at it, you know, in that sense. That's why I personally think when everybody, you know, first starts off, like if you first graduated college and you just got your first job, like the first thing I think everybody should do, and I wish I did this in hindsight, was buy a four family using an FHA loan, live in one yes. unit, you know, house hack it, right? Three and a half percent down. Three and because a half percent. Else, Perfect. Yeah, it's nuts. I love that it's you crazy. said that. Yeah. It's a great way to start, you know, for somebody who's just graduating college, they just got their first job, um, you know, use an FHA loan, you buy a four family, three and a half percent down, they'll, you know, qualify you with a suit, you know, a higher debt to income ratio. Um, they'll allow you to take roughly about 70% of the other three units rent roll and use it towards your income when applying for that loan. Most people can get a loan larger than they think because they don't realize that the bank doesn't just use their income for that loan. They also use the income of the other units, you know, for that loan when you qualify for it. Um, you've probably lowered your monthly, you know, living expense because you have three other people helping you pay you know, towards, you know, and your you only living. have to live in it for a year is my understanding. And then you can move out and put somebody else in that, that fourth unit. And then mm -hmm. you have that property forever. Exactly. You could hold it forever. And you so, think about it, think, think about somebody who bought like, um, even, a, you know, let's use round numbers, a $500,000, you know, four family, for that $500,000 for family, as an example, or let's even use a million bucks. Cause I can use, do the numbers quicker in my head for a million dollar for family you took 35,000 out of your money for down payment plus whatever the closing costs were. But for 35,000, once you eventually move out of that, you're going to be cash flow positive on it. So now you have this asset that is paying for itself. On top of that, you're probably getting passive cash flow. If that person holds that forever, you know, 30 years down the road when it's fully paid off, if that appreciates at the rate of, you know, roughly a little over 6% a year, that million dollar property that you bought 30 years ago, on average, using the rule of 72, the rule of 72, you just take the return divided by 72, and that's how long it would take to double in value. That would be, that would mean that property is worth about 2.5x more. That million dollar property is worth 2.5 million in 30 years when that person's now in their 50s after they graduated college. They now have 2.5 million dollar asset free and clear. That's, that's good for retirement money, right? It's, it's amazing. Like I, I would say, the, that is my, like one of my number one advice to young people is, is you're only a first time home buyer once, you know, so don't waste it on buying a single family Buy buy, you know, if you can afford a fourplex, I love the idea of using um, the income from the other three to help qualify. That's, that's huge. Um, and then, you know, if you can think to yourself, I'm just not going to sell anything. You know, I mean, like I was in Florida in January. My wife and I went down and we, we met with a couple that um, we used to live in the same neighborhood as them. They're like, Darren, you know what your house is worth now? You know, and I think we bought the house. It was in, it was in the, on the East Coast of Florida, 364000 And when we moved to Texas, we sold it for, I don't know, 430 or 440 or something like that. Um, well, now it's worth a million bucks. You know, had I rented it and just held on, I would have had 600 some odd thousand yeah. dollars of extra, you know, equity that was built up just by holding on and owning an asset. Right, right. Yeah, and that's something I always think about. I always think, you know, should I try to one day buy deals with the thought process being and being transparent with LPs that this will be a legacy asset. This will be an asset that we buy that we intend on really holding forever. And throughout the term of holding this forever, we were, we will perpetually keep, you know, re-leveraging and refining because if you put a hundred thousand into this deal up front, you know, our goal would be within, you know, five to seven years to get your hundred thousand out of there by, you know, refining and re-leveraging and now you get that perpetual, or excuse me, what we call the infinite return, right? The infinite return, you have no money at risk, but it's continuing to pay you. And you still got that percentage of ownership. And maybe that's an asset that we hold for 20 or 30 years. So when we hold that for 20 or 30 years, we keep refining. And here's the beauty of that. Refi proceeds are tax-free. Right. So you're getting your money back. You got the tax benefit when you put the money in, but you're getting your money back tax-free and then you're taking your money that you're getting back and you're using that to invest in more properties. You're getting more tax deductions. You're building more wealth. You're getting more passive income. And again, I always, 
like for me, if I could find a fund like that, I would start investing a ton of money in a fund like that. I don't know, again, because I've never really spoken too in depth to other people about this. But to me, that's always been something that really does intrigue me. Just the benefits of being able to hold something, you know, forever, just the infinite return aspect of it. Right. So it's something that I think, you know, sometime down the road, I'll certainly look into and, you know, feeling people out to see if it would be something they'd be interested in. Yeah, I think I think that, that the approach makes sense. I think you have what the piece you have to look at is the velocity of money is, right. you know, if you were to be able to, to sell that and then roll that into another deal that is going to, you know, return more on your capital at that point in time than if you had left it in there. That's the piece that you have to, to look at because I have a deal where, you know, they did refi. I was in a syndication. They did refi out um, all of the investor money and it is infinite returns and you're getting that, you know, nice cash on cash with no money left in the deal, which is nice. But the question is, okay, you know, every time they refi, there's still whatever, 25% equity is still left in the deal. If you took that equity and you put it into another deal that was a value-add deal that had capital to improve the property, where maybe this property, they've already done the value-add and they don't have any more money to make it better so they're not going to be able to really juice up the, you know, the returns and, and get the rents up that much higher. Um, and, you know, it'd be slow and steady. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the piece that I think you have to, to measure it up against. But, right. Um, you know, I know some people that are really good about doing kind of all of the above. You know, they buy some deals on their own. They do syndications. They have some deals that they consider legacy assets, you know, so that may be the play is to, you know, to kind of diversify into those different categories. Sure, sure, definitely. Oh, man. So talk about affordability gap. You're, you're a stats guy, so I can come to you on stats. I know. I know <laughs> yeah. That. So affordability gap's big right now. It is significantly cheaper to rent versus own in this country right now. I, I always do this. I, any deal that I invest in both as an LP and a GP, I do basically a three mile radius around the property. And I look at the single family homes. I want to see what their values are because I want to see what is the alternative because you would assume that your typical renter, if they're buying a house, they're going to be putting down, you know, not like 50%. They historically will be putting down somewhere close to the 10% even 5%, even 3.5% in some cases if they go FHA. So what I look at See, is Texas you, is 20%. Yeah. So, well, you could still go FHA with a lower down payment. But yeah, to your point, it is common that people will put down 20%. So you could run the number that way as well. But either way, what I try to figure out is, okay, in this three-mile radius, if somebody wanted to buy versus rent, what's the difference going to be as far as monthly cost is concerned? Um, it's funny enough you say this, because I didn't know we would talk about this, but I was literally doing that this morning. I was looking at one of our properties and I was seeing, you know, nearby complexes, nearby subdivisions. What are the homes selling for? And, you know, what it comes out to with where rates are right now, you know, on single family home sales right now, the average nationwide rate as of today, it's gone up like 75 basis points in the past 10 days, but it's 6.75%. So 6.75%, if you buy with 10% down, and that means you're going to pay PMI, private mortgage insurance. The cost of that in a lot of cases could be close to $750 to $1,000 more than it is to rent. So, and there's also really good indexes put out by like uh, services like Black Knight, John Burns Consulting, and they'll show you the affordability gap. And right now, you know, yes, it is significantly cheaper to rent versus own. And on top of that, we have the second lowest amount of inventory ever in this country to begin a year in 2023. The lowest ever was last year, 2022. So we have super low inventory. We have high rates. We have high demand for housing. So it's one of those things where people naturally will want to buy, but can they buy is really the question. Sure. Um, the thing is, you know, in recessionary times, not that we're in a recession right now, we could be perhaps in the future, who knows, but during recessionary times when household formation goes down, most people think that the people who aren't buying are just going to rent. But what it actually shows is that people historically will just renew in place wherever they happen to be. 
They won't move or they'll move in with family or they'll continue to live with family if they've been living with family and, you know, kind of push off buying or push off household formation in general for a little bit. But um, affordability gap is huge right now. You know, as far as, you know, rents are concerned, we saw historical rises in rents, you know, over the past, you know, couple years here. Um, that is tempering down now. You know, we're getting more back more towards historical norms. Um but still, I mean, there is an enormous affordability gap. It is significantly cheaper. And you could probably look at this across almost any apartment complex in the whole country. And I can guarantee you it is significantly cheaper to rent um, at an apartment complex within a three-mile radius of what you could buy. Do you see that changing? It's tough to say because here's the problem. Um, rates being this high is a problem as far as like monthly debt service is concerned on a single-family home purchaser that's going to buy a house. The bigger issue that is though, if rates do go back down towards the fours, like Mortgage Bankers Association of America believes that by Q3 2024, single family mortgage rates will be 4.4%. If that happens, there's so much demand on the sidelines. Last year, you know, we went from 6.5 million annualized home sales all the way down to 4 million. That matched 2008 as far as level of demand is concerned. And 2008 is a totally different market than what it is now. 2008 had, you know, I'm from New Jersey, so I, we always say Fugazi loans. Had all these Fugazi loans, you know, where basically <laughs> you breathe in a mirror and, you know, you, you, you get money, essentially. Well, we don't have that this time. They're the lowest delinquency rates of all time. So if rates go back down, these people who are waiting to buy, we have the most 30 to 35-year-olds of all time in this country ever before. It's a baby boomers kids. They had a lot of kids apparently. So especially this five-year gap here. Um, so with that being said, if the rates do go back down, there's going to be a rush of buyers. And that's probably going to send single family home prices higher because right now people are just qualifying because people buy the monthly payment. They don't buy the price of the house. They buy the monthly payment. Right. So if people are qualifying at this monthly payment right now, when rates go down, they still can afford the same monthly payment, but that same monthly payment affords them to buy it for more money. And ultimately that increases, you know, down payments, which therefore affects people looking to buy that house. This is a very long way of saying that I don't know if that affordability gap is going to get solved anytime soon. Maybe the only way it gets solved is if rents just go so high that they start getting close to the, you know, monthly mortgage payment of what it costs to own a home. And what a lot of people, unfortunately, especially first-time home buyers, don't realize when you buy a house, you're not just buying that monthly payment, you're buying the maintenance too. Because what happens if your air conditioning system goes, your heating system goes, you know, things like that, your hot water heater goes, uh, you got to replace windows, you know, things like that. Uh, not everybody takes that into consideration when they buy a house. And when that happens, all of a sudden your heating system and cooling system goes, it's five figures out of pocket to replace those things. How many people have that? Um, so it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, but I don't really see this affordability gap, you know, getting closed um, significantly at least anytime soon. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I think about is, you know, you have so many homeowners that finance their home and refinance their home and they're sitting on, you know, a sub 3% mortgage rate. And that, you know, unless they have to move or, or they're retiring to a different state, like why are they going to sell? Because if they, if they put their house up for sale, you know, they're going to move down the road into a different house and they're going to have a much higher, you know, mortgage rate. And so it's going to be so much more expensive. So I, I just don't see a lot of homes coming up for sale um, because you've got a lot of people sitting on low interest rates. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I did a webinar on this on uh, Monday night for, you know, state of the market. Here's a perfect example that I gave. Somebody who bought a $500,000 house five years ago in 2018, the Case-Shiller Index is the number one site index for home prices in the country. The Case-Shiller Index shows that from today, you know, when we're shooting this in February of 2023, from January of 2018 to February, 2023, home prices have gone up by 50%. Now, what that means is that somebody who bought a five hundred thousand dollars house in twenty eighteen, that five hundred thousand dollars house is now worth seven fifty. Furthermore, the U.S. Department of Commerce says the average interest rate for a homeowner today is three point four seven percent. Wow! So if if we use the three point four seven percent number on somebody who bought a five hundred thousand dollars house, and we just assume a twenty percent down payment, that means that their monthly payment on that home is roughly about seventeen fifty between principal and interest. Now today. For them to buy their same exact house they bought five years ago would cost seven fifty, 
And if we use rates, the example I gave on the webinar, if we use rates of 6.5%, they would have to put down 150 instead of 100 grand. And now their loan would be $600,000. A $600,000 loan at 6.5% interest would increase their monthly payment by $2,000 a month between just principal and interest. So and furthermore, 3750 about 3750 a little more than that. I think it was about 3789 So wow. it would go up by 2000 more per month. Now, Darren, historically, your move-up buyers, they buy a house worth 50% more than their current home. So for that person to become a move-up buyer and buy that next-level house, they would have to sell their now $750,000 house, and that would imply they buy a house for $1.125 million. Now, if they buy a house today for $1.125 million, with 20% down, that would be, you know, 20% down payment. That would mean a loan, a mortgage of $900,000. A $900,000 mortgage at a 6.5% interest rate would increase their monthly payment by $4,000 a month. $4,000 a month. So, and Darren, that doesn't even consider their, their increase in tax and insurance. If you take that into account, you're talking about an increase in monthly payment by $5,000. And when we really think about it that way, an increase in monthly payment of $5,000, that's 60,000 a year. To clear 60,000 a year, you have to make probably about 90 grand after you take the taxes out of your paycheck. You have to make an extra 90 grand a year at work just to break even on affording that increase in monthly payment. So what are these people doing? They're not selling. They're going to say, you know what? Yeah, 17, you know, 50 on the monthly payment. That's a whole lot better than, you know, 6750. We don't really need that extra bedroom. We don't need that extra office, you know, so what they're doing is they're staying in place and that's going to suppress inventory for a long time. I think, I, um, I think so too, for a long time, the biggest, I think the biggest, um, potential to change is if they're, you know, we've seen in the tech sector layoffs, if, if that continues, you know, if people lose their job, even if they're paying the 1750 and they, if they can't afford that anymore, then they're like, hey, now's the right time to sell. I'll book my gain and I'll rent. Yeah, that's definitely possible. I don't think that that person is going to be able to go and buy another house, like you said, they're, nor would they want to. It's, it's a matter of, look, I lost my job. I don't have the cash flow coming in. I'll sell. Our house is appreciated a ton. I'll sell the house and I'll rent. So... I think that supports rental prices. Um, sure. But in any event. Um, and one thing on that too, I think, uh, you know, speaking of somebody selling their house and things of that sort and, you know, how it could, you know, what are some other things that, you know, could perhaps help prices, help affordability? It, it would be new construction. The problem is it's just, it's gotten so expensive to build. You know, between the red tape before you stick a shovel in the ground that you have to deal with all the cities, labor costs, material costs, everything has gone so high that like realistically building these days, it's tough to build unless you're building something expensive. So that traditional, you know, two to $300,000, you know, first time home buyer house, it just doesn't really exist anymore. Unfortunately, Um, John Burns Consulting put out a good stat on that. If they could figure out, you know, where to build you know, where to buy land and build, you know, for, to make housing prices affordable again, two to 300,000 with today's interest rates. Yeah. Then people would flock. Yeah, definitely. And I can tell you this. I mean, I, I see that as, I think it's also something that people don't take into consideration with their multifamily properties, you know, with their apartment complexes, the new supply risk. I think that's, you know, there's three things I worry about that are kind of out of your control a little bit. If new supply comes online that was not permitted prior to you purchasing insurance every single year, it seems like it's going up, you know, an insane amount that you can't even project how much this was going to go up. And number three, in a state like Texas in particular, property taxes, property taxes, it gets to the point where you, I mean, I believe that they just sit in a, in a room and they start throwing darts at a board and saying, all right, that's going to be your tax bill this year. What can we we get away with? Yeah. Yeah. What can we get away with? You know, this is, you know, really been their piggy bank for a long time, but can they keep increasing taxes when valuations go flat as they are right now? Um, or even in some cases declining. So it'll be interesting to see what those tax bills come out at. So do you think the new supply is a risk on BC assets or just on the A? 
I would say more on the A side for sure, yeah. as opposed to B and C. Um, yeah, definitely more on the A. I'll, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. So we bought a property last year in April. And what we always do is, at least what I always do, is always look around the three-mile radius. Is there any new permitted new construction being built? There wasn't. However, there was one about five, six miles away. Well, we didn't really think that would be a competitor for us, but it turned out to be a competitor for us because, you know, what a community like that will do is they'll drill your, and it's, you know, frowned upon, but people do it. They'll drill your community's mailboxes and say, hey, we got this new complex. It's, you know, five miles away. We're offering two months free rent. Well, how do you compete with that when they offer two months free rent and, you know, they'll pay moving costs and things of that sort. So what we saw, and it definitely affected us, our occupancy was lower than we anticipated. It was in the low 90s. Now we're up to 97% because they, they've pretty much got those units leased up over there. So we're not dealing with as many issues with that anymore. <laughs> right. But it's one of those things where, you know, historically you always think that your competition is a one to three mile radius. Now this has totally kind of changed my mindset. Like, okay, maybe we have to change our thought process on this. Maybe we have to look out five miles because maybe within five miles is a competitor because you never know. Maybe they'll just start drilling, you, you know, your residence mailboxes and saying, Hey, are you up for renewal? Because if you are, and it could be somebody who just moved in, but you know, they 10 months down the road, but for instance, they might hit a mailbox where the renewals in two months right. and we send a renewal notice and they're like, Hey, we just got a uh, two months rent free offer and paid moving expenses from this community. Can you match that? Well, it's kind of hard to match that, right? It's kind of hard to match essentially what equates to three months free rent. So um, you wind up losing people that way. Uh, absolutely. Um, so you've been in the real estate world for a long time. I've been in the real estate, purchasing real estate, investing only for like the last five years. Um, but I've been trading loan portfolios uh, since 2002, residential, multifamily, and commercial. And my viewpoint is that real estate prices will continue to increase residential, multifamily, commercial over time. And yet every investment is cyclical. And so you need to figure out and plan to figure out how to get through the tough times because there will be tough times in real estate also, just like every other investment. But over the medium to long-term time, I don't see another investment that is as attractive because of the leverage and the tax efficiency. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, real estate, they always say is not get rich quick. It's get rich for sure. Um, and what they mean by for sure is over the long haul, you know, they don't say wait to buy real estate. They say, you know, buy real estate and wait for a reason because over the long term, the fundamentals, you're going to be able to replace a lot of things, you know, in, in this country, in this world, you know, with technology, but what you ultimately can't replace is shelter you know, roof over your head at the end of the day. So fundamentally, um, real estate's in a, you know, really good spot, depending upon where you look, we're around like 5 million housing units short in this country right now. So when you have a shortage of housing and, you know, especially for the next 15 years or so, you have people, you know, very large amount of people hitting peak household formation age. Um, the fundamentals, you know, really do ultimately work out. And as you know, we talked about earlier, it's getting more and more expensive to build. So, it's hard to build, you know, anything that's quote unquote affordable these days. And I don't mean affordable with capital A affordable, meaning, you know, government mandated affordable. I mean like market rate affordable. Right. Um, so over the long haul, yes, uh, definitely. Now, obviously there could be blips like right now, as an example, when you have this rate shock where rates right. go from, you know, overnight, essentially zero to, you know, where they are now, um, you're going to have rate shocks. You're going to have events like this where, you know, prices do go flat and in some markets they even decline. Um, but over the long haul, you know, everything ultimately does, you know, balance out and, you know, real estate historically, again, we talked about this earlier, 1870 to 2015, that's, the geometric mean, crazy, you know, when it, yeah. When it kind of volatility. Yeah. So Kyle, what do, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Fun. Um, I love sports. sports. So, uh, so Rutgers, yeah. Yeah, Rutgers I'm football. A big, Rutgers football in particular, uh, Rutgers basketball, you know, they, uh, they, 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 the Rutgers basketball gives me a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, high heart rates at times because <laughs> they, I mean, they could one night, they could beat the number one team in the country, which they did this year. They beat Purdue who was number one in the country. 
you know, a few weeks later, they can lose to one of the worst teams in the whole conference in Nebraska, which we did recently as well. So, um, but yeah, that, and I like hockey, you know, I like the, you know, the Rangers, I'm a New York Rangers fan. So we're having a really good year this year. So pumped up about that. And, uh, yeah, I like skiing. Um, I like, you know, I play, play a lot of sports. I still play basketball. East coast skiing or Colorado skiing? So East coast ice, as they say. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah. East coast ice. And I was Freeze in Colorado. As skiing. you go up the, the chairlift with the yep. man-made snow. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was, uh, I was skiing in Colorado last week and I'll be skiing in Vermont this week. Yeah. Colorado is much more favorable in terms of the temperature. It certainly um, is. So, Hey, how, how do people reach out to you if they want to get to know you more? Yeah. If people want to reach out to me, they can go to our website, which is covatsmultifamily.com. Um, or they could simply shoot me an email. My email is very simple. It's just my name, Kyle Kovats at gmail.com. So can you spell your last name for people? Yes. It's K O V A T S. Beautiful. So Kovats multifamily.com or Kyle at uh, Kyle Kovats at gmail.com. Kyle Kovats at gmail.com. Kyle, man, you are a plethora of information. I don't know you, how you keep up with it all, but uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing with, with everybody. I learned a ton. So listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, sign off. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 